This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. Feisty, fearless, and fair. She's an Emmy-winning journalist from the White House to war zones, telling all sides of the story. This is the Rita Cosby Show. It is gut-wrenching. The more details we are getting out of Texas as to what went wrong, and obviously there are so many layers to what happened at the Texas school shooting, and tonight I want to hear your thoughts and get your calls as to where you think the breakdown happened. Obviously, the shooter is to blame. What he did was despicable. He is no longer with us because a very sharp Border Patrol agent took him out. So thank goodness for the Border Patrol agent. And now we're hearing that nobody maybe had even given the message to go breach and storm the compound and that it may have been a border agent who acted on his own and said, we're just going in because it is so bad. They were so concerned that time had passed, and they were basically like, are you kidding me, when they were hearing from Uvalde police that they should basically stand down and wait? The Border Patrol agent basically said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going in, and he and a number of others did. And as we know now, it was an elite border agent from BORTAC. It's basically sort of a SWAT unit of the the Border Patrol went in and took that shot that took out the gunman. Thank goodness. You know, but what were they waiting for, guys? And it's heartbreaking as we're learning more and more details because it's just so horrible that we're hearing how time goes on. And listen, as you all know, I am one of the biggest supporters of law enforcement out there. And 99.999% of the time, law enforcement gets it right. And so much of the time, they get the short end of the stick where people are criticizing them and people are blasting them. And I think it is outrageous. All of this defund the police. After all of this, I hope, first of all, that this is a wake-up call to local departments around the country that you got to be prepared for the worst-case scenario. God forbid this should happen again. And sadly, it probably will happen in other school districts, as we know, sadly, just from statistics. Hopefully it won't. But we have to be prepared for the worst. And there are a lot of takeaways from this. Better training for law enforcement. But also, we got to make sure we have law enforcement. we got to make sure that people know who are the ones who are in authority. How could there be mixed messages? Now we're hearing that it may have been a little bit of confusion at the scene. And remember on Friday, because there's been some devastating details that have come out in the last 24 hours, but I want to take you back to last Friday. 
because this is when Steve McCraw, and he is with the Texas Department of basically, you know, Homeland Security there for in, in you know, the state of Texas. They basically oversee it's Texas DPS, um, but it's basically overseeing all of the law enforcement there. He came out and he said there is no way to mince the words that they got it wrong in law enforcement. Take a listen. For the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision. It was a wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. Absolutely no excuse for that. And what he's saying is there should have been no wait, zero wait. When you have kids inside, and we know now that the gunman took 19 children and two teachers, you cannot wait. And we know for a fact that it was almost an hour from their first contact with him to the next time they had contact with him. And he basically said, Steve McCraw, that this Uvalde police chief who is in charge of sort of Uvalde school area, he's the one who made the call. And the guy's name is Pete Arredondo, Chief Pete Arredondo. Why is he even still working for the department at this point? Uh, To me, that is outrageous. He should absolutely not be working there. There are so many great cops, and now we're hearing from a lot of law enforcement that they were so frustrated at the scene that they wanted to go in, and they were basically told, wait, it is not an active shooter situation. What, are you going to let the kids bleed out, which is what some people believe happened to their children? And apparently there were shots that were fired after they made that decision. They had people right outside the door. You can tell if their shots fired or not. Why are we getting so many mixed messages? And what do you think should happen to this police chief who made the absolute wrong call, who, by the way, has not been seen publicly for like a week or so since basically this happened? Because everybody knows he made the wrong call. And in fact, the head of Texas DPS, Steve McCraw, called him out and he said he's the guy who made the wrong call. So I want to hear your thoughts tonight as to what you think should happen. And as we're getting more and more details, imagine being one of these family members and how gut-wrenching it is. You're kept outside. You're not allowed to go in. And now you find out that it's this local police chief who told everybody, oh, wait, it's not an active shooter situation. But then there's gunfire going off inside the building. And there's law enforcement right there. So what, did they not have a radio? Were they not in communication with each other? I mean, what is this, the 1800s? Are you kidding me? Uh, I mean, is this a sign that we're not supplying our police? I mean, there's a lot of questions tonight. Are we not giving them enough manpower? Are we not giving them enough firepower? Uh, Because they had to wait till they could get a shield because obviously this guy was loaded for bear and they couldn't go up against him. That took about five, six minutes. Then they had to wait to get the key from the janitor. That took another like 45 minutes, supposedly. I mean, you don't have that kind of time when you've got an active shooter in the building. And Steve McCraw, to his credit, came right away on Friday, remember, and he said this is where the wrong decision was made. Take a listen. The question simply is this, there's a 40-minute gap, and if the 911 operators were aware that, that children were alive in that classroom, why weren't officers notified of that, and if that's the case, why didn't they take action? That's the question. 
again, the, I'll go back to the answer for right now, is that that it was considered, okay, the decision was made on the scene. I wasn't there, but at the same point in time, you know, a decision was made that this was a barricaded subject situation. There was time to retrieve the keys and wait for a tactical team with the equipment to, to go ahead and breach the door and take on the subject at that point. That was the decision. That was the thought process at that particular point in time. And clearly that was the wrong one. And now more details are coming out that just look really bad. And I want to hear your thoughts as you hear this audio. This just came out from ABC News. ABC News obtained exclusive audio of a dispatcher relaying to law enforcement saying, wait a minute, I want you guys to be aware. We're getting calls from kids in the building that are calling 911 that are saying they're still alive, that the gunman is killing people, and that there are still survivors inside. Take a listen to some of this. Wow. A room full of children. So there's a room full of children. There are some who are shot. There are some who are alive. And there are said to be also 911 calls where gunshots are going off in the background. What are your thoughts tonight? And where do we go from here? Because the Department of Justice has now officially announced that they will do an investigation. I don't have a lot of faith in the Biden Department of Justice, but I do think somebody needs to look into this outside of all these local agencies that were involved to see who made the call. Already the Steve McRae is saying this local guy who, again, isn't anywhere to be seen suddenly, apparently had three decades of experience in Texas law enforcement before they put him in charge of the Uvalde School District security. He obviously got a minus F on that. But shouldn't some heads roll in terms of people being held responsible? Some people should be fired. Absolutely. And why are they getting a chance to not being able to explain to these families? These families deserve to know. And why are we hearing different stories over and over again? Why do we first hear that there was a police guy who was out there? Remember that it was a school security guard. And now we're hearing, no, no, there wasn't a school security guard that he actually drove by the gunman and didn't realize he was the gunman. You know, wasn't even at the area that they only have four for eight school districts. I don't blame him because at that point the gunman, I think, didn't have the gun out or anything like that. Um, but why do we only have four when you have eight schools in that area? I mean, that's a big issue. Uh, there's a lot of issues here with underfunding, undertraining, understaffing, undersupplying. And maybe it also comes down to some bad decisions by police, sadly, at this particular place. 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Patrick, line two. Patrick uh, in Pennsylvania. What are your thoughts, Patrick? Hi. Good evening, Mrs. Cosby. Always a pleasure to speak with you, ma'am. You too. Um, you too. What do you think, Patrick? You know, it pains me because I love law enforcement, but... There's some big issues going on here, and it sounds to me like the local guy um, there 
was saying was on some ego trip maybe and or had bad information. I mean, who knows? There's questions whether he even had a, quote, radio, which is astounding if that's the case. Um, and if he didn't, why didn't he have a radio? Um, and that apparently even some of the guys who went in at one point were barring like a shield from somebody else to get in there. Like it sounded like there was a lack of equipment, lack of communication, uh, whatever the case is. It, you know, we have a lot of dead children and a dead teacher who deserve answers. Um, the only thing I can really say is uh, the young man who, who, who did the shooting, he was insane, but he obviously never demonstrated insane behavior. And in this kind of situation, there's no way to stop it. Just no way. I mean, nobody knew the kid was insane. So, all right. So, Patrick, Patrick, I'm going to correct you on that one. Um, Just because we, you know, there's a report and we'll find out how true it is. But we there was a report from a Texas state senator because you're not supposed to be releasing juvenile records. But apparently, um, according to this Texas state senator, this guy, when he was 14, said he couldn't wait to turn 18 so he could open fire on a school and that he was arrested for making threats as a juvenile, spent a little bit of time in juvenile hall. Um, and then in the last you know, year or so or two has been mutilating his face, mutilating himself, um, putting stuff on social media, having very sort of aggressive behavior, lots of threats to as well. Um, so it sounds to me like there were a couple things. I mean, I don't consider that normal, by the way, that when he was 14, he said, when I'm 18, I'm going to go shoot up a school. And sadly, what does he do? He goes and buys a gun when he's 18. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, his grandmother sadly got shot in the face by him. But I'm wondering, what did his family know? I mean, what did his grandparents know? His coworkers thought the guy was aggressive and scary. Um, we're knowing that other classmates were saying that, too, as well. And he was arrested for making these kind of threats four years ago. I'd say those are red flags, Patrick. What do you think? Hey, Patrick? Then I can say the authorities were negligent in preventing this. Yeah, I agree. By the way, Patrick, I 1,000% agree. And And there's a lot of places where... Again, we don't know if the grandmother knew that he bought a gun. You know, a lot of times people, kids buy a gun. They don't tell their parents or grandparents because he was living with his grandparents. He may not have told them. But there's something fishy here that a kid who says he's going to do this when he turns 18 and spends time uh, in juvenile hall, according to this Texas official, and now he does it when he's 18, you know, and, and people are going, oh, I'm surprised. I mean, he basically had a billboard saying this is what I'm going to do, you know, and, and I agree with you. I 1000 percent agree. Patrick, thank you very much for the call. We're going to continue with your calls, everybody, after the break. one 800 It's the Rita Cosby Show. And you were listening to the Rita Cosby Show and some damning comments coming from Texas officials about the poor law enforcement response. And we're talking about the Texas school shooting in Uvalde. By the way, 
uh, two of the funeral services uh, took place today. How sad is that just to see already the services? And there will be many, many, many more this week. Well, Texas Senator Roland Gutierrez did not mince words in an interview. Take a listen to what he says in terms of the law enforcement response. I had a long talk with uh, Colonel McGraw yesterday. Uh, he was devastated. He's, you've seen on television. He's acknowledged that there were errors here. What I've suggested to him is that it is not fair to put it on the local ISD cop. At the end of the day, everybody failed here. We failed these children. And then he also said that had law enforcement gotten in there sooner, maybe some of the children may not have died. Take a listen. In this one instance, this little girl was shot through the back, possibly through the kidney. Uh, one round, most unfortunately had a different fate, but one round for this little girl likely bled out. Had we had law enforcement going in there earlier, this girl might, this little girl might have lived. That is heartbreaking to hear, and that is going to be the root of so many investigations in weeks and months to come. Department of Justice now looking into law enforcement, saying that law enforcement on the ground essentially failed the children of Uvalde. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Susan on line four. Susan, your thoughts about this? Oh, Rita, there's so many things, but I'm just trying to, like, pick out something that just really stuck out to me that's been um, reported, um, which is. Oops, I just lost you, Susan. Susan, call us back. Susan, give us a call back. Let's go to Sammy on line three. Sammy, go ahead. Susan was just about to get to her point. but Go ahead, Sammy. Uh, Rita, how you doing? Um, let me tell you, I, I, the whole, there's so many crossing stories over here. First, they said that there were six policemen watching him in the building. If you see the guy pulling out a gun at one shot, they look something wrong. One cop could take the guy out with one bullet. I think that they were, cops were told to stand down. Yes. And I think not the left, but I think people on the right, like Ted Cruz, he's a tremendous, uh, intelligent man and a lawyer. Uh, 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 attorney, and he's from Texas. He should interrogate the, this McGraw man and find out all the way back to his roots, where he got his orders from. As I'm sure one one school after another is happening. Since Obama is in, all these things to make America unrest. And, and he could find out if he interrogates the guy, waterboards the guy. He's got to uh, find out. Wait, Sammy, so wait, out. Sammy, you think that, well, first of all, this McGraw guy said during the press conference last week because he's sort of the overseer of the whole group and he basically said that it was the local police chief the school uvalde police chief this guy named pete arundondo he basically called him out by name and he said that he indeed um and i see your calls everybody we're going to get to them in a moment um but um what i was going to say is that he basically said that um, this particular guy was the commander on the ground, so th- not him, but somebody else. And he came right out and said that guy made the wrong decision. It was the wrong decision, and he thought it was a, a barricaded situation as opposed to an active shooter. And now we're learning from that call. Did you hear that dispatch call? That the yeah. dispatch was relaying there are kids inside, they're alive, 
and the shooter's there. And there were other calls, apparently, that also said that, guess what? You know what? Uh, We're hearing gunshots in the background. We're hearing this in the background. We're hearing that in the background. I mean, when you're getting that kind of a, you know, you you can't wait, Sammy. I mean, to me, it is astounding. Doesn't make sense. If the policemen are trained to protect the people and they're just standing there waiting for a phone call, somebody to tell them, the boss telling them what to do. So why were they trained? Right. Why did they take off off, off of office to protect people? Absolutely. Part of the problem, though, Sammy. I think, Sammy, yeah. by the way, I like what you're, where you're going. I think they, these people should be grilled. They have to say exactly. who made – what did this guy make the call? And then what, did everybody have to, like, acquiesce to the guy? By the way, what we're also hearing now from this Texas official is that apparently when Border Patrol got there, they're like, "What? who is this guy? Why Are you kidding me? He's saying stand back. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? And so they just went in, and it turned out that it was one of those border guys from an elite unit who said, we got to go in. You can't wait. Thank goodness they just said to heck with that guy, and they overrode him, and they went in and took the shot and took the guy out. And not that's a hard decision, though, Sammy. Um, but thank you very much for the call, Sammy. I really appreciate it. It's a hard decision to override the, quote, commander on the ground. But if you know you got kids in there, you got to go in. Rita Cosby is on. The Rita Cosby Show presents Back the Blue. And in tonight's Back the Blue, where we honor our great men and women in uniform who always try to do the best they can. A great story coming out of Fredericksburg, Virginia, where three police officers in Virginia saved a choking toddler after pulling her father over for speeding. Officer Christian Durham saw a car going 70 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone. I'd say that car was going fast. Around 4 a.m. earlier this month along the highway in Fredericksburg. Now, when he pulled the car over, the driver said that his four-year-old, his two-year-old daughter, rather, was having an emergency. The toddler was choking and had trouble breathing, and it was very visible. So Officer Durham called for backup. Hearing the call, Officers Devin Kraft and Camille Zicher headed to the scene as well. And working together, the three officers provided first aid with Officer Durham patting the two-year-old on the back until she could breathe freely once again. Officer Kraft said, thank God, as soon as that baby starts crying and it's breathing, you're like, cool, everything is much better now. Officers Durham Durham and Zicher said that the situation was particularly stressful because they are parents themselves and have infants around the same age. The toddler's parents later thanked all three officers on Facebook a simple gesture that would go a long way. Officer Durham said, I know for me personally, just that thank you is more than enough. So it just goes to show the great work that our men and women in blue do every single day and how dangerous and how stressful their job is and how diverse and how many different you know circumstances they are in every single day. And we are talking now, sadly, about a lot of the criticism that is coming toward law enforcement and others in relation to the Texas school shooting. What red flags do you think were missed in this case? And also, what do you think went wrong with the law enforcement response? There's a lot of people pointing fingers today, including the head of Texas Department of Public Safety, Steve McCraw. 
He came out on Friday with a stunning admission saying that it was the wrong decision for the local commander who took basically the position of the commander at the scene for all the different departments because a lot of different departments were responding. And he said that that person assumed responsibility as the commander and said, stand down, basically. Do not go in because it is not an active shooter situation. That turned out to be incredibly wrong because the shooter still was firing rounds. And indeed, what I don't understand is who on the ground was saying, wait a minute, they're firing. We can hear it. I mean, you can hear, especially if you're there in the school and they were said to be on the other side of the door. We also know now that there were 911 calls coming in and that were constantly coming in, including from two students who repeatedly called. Apparently, there were at least nine calls from teachers and students, but two from folks that were inside the school and from two same students calling over and over again saying, the shooter's here, he's shooting. There are children inside. There's some that are alive. There's some that aren't. You know, please come in. I want to play that again, too. This is the dispatch audio, too, because this is the new thing that everybody is talking about. Take a listen. This was obtained by ABC News, and I want to get your reaction to this. He's in a room full of victims. That is from the 911 dispatcher relaying reportedly to the police on the scene. So you got a room full of victims. That means assuming that they're injured and you got to hurry up and get to them. Anybody who knows who has seen somebody who's been shot by a gun, you got to hurry up and get somebody. You got to get them. Anybody who's, who's gone through something catastrophic like that, you got to take them to the hospital right away. Every second counts. So there are so many questions tonight. And Bill Bratton, who was the former head of the NYPD, said he was disgusted when he saw the fact that law enforcement in this case was told to stand back and listen to those orders. Take a listen. That every day in America, American police officers go toward the danger. They go into unknown circumstances risking their lives. That's what's expected of them. That's what they themselves expect when they take the oath of office to protect and to serve. That, uh, certainly there was risk and there was danger there. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, that's what you sign on to do, to go to the danger, to go, to go to the sound of the guns. And there was a report that some in law enforcement were afraid that the shooter would shoot at them. And, and that is our genuine concern. You don't want dead cops. But that is what they sign up for is to go into difficult situations. Obviously, you want them the best protected if it means just a few minutes, like apparently it took five or six minutes to get the shield that would protect them. I think that's a fair thing to wait for. You certainly want the cops to be as well protected as possible. But Bill Bratton said there's a lot of issues here. Take a listen. Here's a little more. One of the most important parts of dealing with a crisis is accurate information. Preliminary information, certainly subject to change, but there's been so much misinformation that was put out as factual that the erosion of public trust, certainly in Texas and its police forces, uh, I've, I've never seen anything like it in all my years in policing. And it's uh, as a somebody who's proud of that profession, uh, I, I, I have so much anger 
at the moment about this, how mishandled it's been, uh, let alone uh, compounding the grief of those families that lost those young children. Wow. To hear Bill Bratton, a seasoned veteran law enforcement guy, say he's never seen anything like this in his law enforcement history of such a debacle by law enforcement to not go in. And he said, this is what you train for. Take a listen. Here's a little more of what he had to say. During my time, we created two new units in the city, two 500-person units, all armed with long guns, heavy vests, equipment, that a 1,000 officers, in addition to our already fabled emergency service unit, to try and ensure that within five minutes that we would have uh, enough officers armed with appropriate protective gear and uh, weaponry to basically go toward the shooter. The expression we use in the policing is move to the shooter to effectively you create what we call a stack. You put three or four officers together who can, in a coordinated fashion, go in toward a shooter. Absolutely. And then the shooter doesn't know who to shoot at. And you get them from all sort of different directions. I mean, ideally, depending what the situation was, and I want to hear from you guys, especially veterans. You know, it is Memorial Day. And I want to hear from you guys, especially who have been there on the front lines and understand, because a lot of veterans have called us in the last few days and said, you know what? Um, What they would have done was hit him from a couple different directions. So he wouldn't know who to fire at, where to go. And one of you guys is going to be able to get a clean shot right away and take him out. You know, and luckily that BORTAC agent, that border agent was able to do that really quickly. Apparently got in position and was able to to take him out. Um, But imagine if they were able to do that kind of a situation sooner. And Bill Bratton said he was just disgusted by the way that law enforcement stood back in this case. Take a listen. This has been one of the most problematic weeks I've ever experienced in American policing in my 50 years. It's uh, the misinformation that's been put out by government officials in Texas is mind-boggling. And it continues even today. Uh, And it's extraordinarily frustrating. I have great pride in my profession, my former profession, policing. But that pride was diminished somewhat this week with the mishandling uh, by uh, Texas authorities. Mishandled by Texas authorities. And Steve McCraw, who's head of the Texas DPS, the public safety division there, said this is what should have been done. Take a listen. From what we know, we believe there should have been an entry at that as soon as you can. Hey, when there's an active shooter, the the rules change. It's no longer, okay, it's no longer a barricaded subject. We don't have time. You don't worry about outer perimeters. And by the way, Texas embraces active shooter training, active shooter certification, and that, that that doctrine requires officers. We don't care what agency you're from. You don't have to have a leader on the scene. Every officer lines up, stacks up, goes and finds where those rounds are being fired at and keeps shooting until the subject is dead, period. And that did not happen. So what do you think went wrong? Are we not giving our police enough appropriate equipment? Um, Are we not giving them enough training? Was it just a bad call by the guy on the ground who had no clue what he's doing? And I have no idea why he is still working there. I'm glad that the border agents basically said to heck with this. According to this Texas state senator, the Border Patrol was, quote, frustrated that this local guy on the ground was saying, oh, it's not an active shooter. We're OK. And and Bortak guy said, uh-uh, we're going in. And was like, too bad. Thank goodness. You know, it's like one of those scenes out of a movie where it's like, I don't care who's in charge. We're going in. 
You know, I mean, and the parents are outside screaming, pleading, going in. Uh, And it sounds to me we're not even sure if the local guy had our radio. I mean, is this bad planning? Is this bad police funding? Is this just an idiot who made some major fatal mistakes? Uh, What went wrong here? 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Al, line seven. Al, your thoughts of what went wrong here. Go ahead, Al. Yeah, hi, uh, Rita. Thanks uh, for uh, taking my call. You know, uh, Bill Bratton, who initiated Comstat under Giuliani, uh, he was the police commissioner under Giuliani. Uh, yes, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Yep. And then and then he came back. He would have been for Mark Green, uh, but Mark Green, as we know, lost to Bloomberg. Then he went on and he became uh, the first commissioner under uh, de Blasio, who was a disaster. The situation, what happened in uh, the school system outside, I believe, San Antonio, it was just a breakdown of communication. And a lot of it has to do with funding. Even if you go to affluent areas in Nassau County and Westchester County, I'm talking affluent counties where they have monies allocated for the schools and millions upon millions of dollars, they just won't pay for security because they don't want to. They want to watch every penny, and the only thing they do is when something right now, probably, if you go to a school system, again, an affluent school system in Nassau County or Westchester County, you'll probably see more of a security presence. But in reality, they just don't do it. Instead of being proactive, they're reactive, and that's that's the problem. So uh, I know, like, for instance, I live in Yonkers. Uh, this, the security in the Yonkers school system is, is very well. Uh, for a brief time, I worked for a security aide in a northern Westchester school system. Now, let me, uh, let me ask you, Al, because Al, yeah. obviously you have a great background here with school security. Did they have armed guards? Like when you say school security went well, if you looked at this school district, like on their website, it looked like they had everything down pat. They did drills not that long ago in the district. And in fact, I mean, which which is... Sad to me this weekend, I was, you know, watching so much and we've been covering so much of it here, of course. Um, I remember looking and one of the things was it was parents saying, we have a tactical unit. We have a SWAT team in Uvalde. They saw pictures, apparently, of the new SWAT team that was posted like a few months ago on a website bragging like all heavily armored, you know. And can you imagine parents like some of the parents who lost loved ones were tweeting out this weekend Sending messages going, uh, we have a SWAT team in Uvalde. Where were they? You know, I, I mean, exactly. you know, like so in other words, what I'm saying to you is it looked like they were very well prepared. The fact they had a SWAT team, they did these drills. The school had all these procedures. Just nothing seemed to happen on the day of the shooting. Yeah, it just seems like right now it's, uh, you know, you're hearing different misinformation of what uh, what occurred. I know Governor Abbott, who's a good man. He's trying to get to the bottom of uh, what occurred because uh, he wants to bring that to his uh, constituency to let them know because it's such a a tragedy what occurred. So what do you think? And I agree with you, listen, because it is early and I am a huge supporter of law enforcement. I mean, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time uh, they do everything right. And they also, I feel like, always get the short end of the stick, too. I always feel like they get such unfair criticism. Um, And this may have been, like you're saying, it may have been a combination of bad equipment, 
bad training. It may have been um, this guy on the ground, this head of the Uvalde school district, who hasn't suddenly has kind of gone underground because he seems to be the one who made the bad call. You know, and he maybe he was on a power trip and he was the guy. I'm the commander on the scene. This is my district, you know. Um, But come on. You have that dispatch call, Al. I mean, we just played it that ABC had. And it says we have a room full of victims. We're getting a call from a child who's still alive, says there are other children that are in there. um, And there's a room full of victims. That means victims means there's a gunman. There's victims. They are bleeding. In other words, you got to hurry up and go in. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know. It's not like they're sitting in there playing, you know, uh, you know, hanging out. And especially when you hear victims, that means they're probably shot. And every second counts, Al. I mean, if you if you heard that, what would you say? If you heard it on the other end and somebody said, hey, listen, we're getting a call from this child this call is this child is called numerous times, by the way, apparently called a number of times saying, please, please hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Can you imagine? Um, yeah, and well, saying there's know, a room you know, full of victims. What do you do, Al? You sit back? No, you know, if I was on the scene, I mean, I'm just, you know, and I like, you know, anybody says who's in law enforcement. When you take that oath, like I believe the police commissioner, the former police commissioner said, uh, when you take that oath, you know, you sign up for that. So I'm sure, uh, you know, a lot of the law enforcement uh, individuals who were on the scene, I'm sure they wanted to go in. But I guess because the chain of command, the hierarchy, hierarchy, there was there was some mass confusion. I guess that's why they didn't go in. And it's, it's tragic. You know, again, I couldn't stress enough that, you know, Governor Abbott's going to get to the bottom of it. I'm sure the sheriff who was ahead of the situation when it occurred, I'm sure he will probably not be in that role much longer. Yeah, let's uh, hope. And, and by know, the way, his name is yeah. Chief Pedro Pete Arredondo. He's head of the Uvalde School. Uh, he's the Uvalde School Police Chief, apparently. And he had about 30 years of experience in, Le- uh, in uh, Laredo and also in Uvalde before they put him in that position. Um, and by the way, he was supposed to be sworn in as a city council member today because that was one of the perks, I guess. And somehow that got delayed. Thank goodness. Uh, but what should happen to him, Al? I mean, I think he should be fired if he indeed made this call. That That's minimum. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure, uh, you know, how the, uh, the city or the town there, how their government runs, if it's the uh, ceremonial mayor, if it's a city manager. But, you know, I think he should definitely... Uh, have to leave that position, uh, you know, you know, with no question about it. I agree. Al, thank you. Great call. Very, very much. We're going to continue with your calls, everybody. 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. This is the Rita Cosby Show. And we are talking about the Texas school shooting. So many more details on what the holdup was for law enforcement to get inside. Here's a little bit more from Texas Department of Public Safety, Steve McCraw. Why and how is being looked at right now. And I'll tell you this, hundreds of more, thousands of more leads are being looked at right now because we haven't answered all the questions. We haven't gotten into the why. Okay, we know the individual was also into cyber gaming. 
in that regard, and, and group gaming in that regard. So we've got a lot of, a lot of questions are out there, and we're seeking answers. And one of the answers is why the holdup to get to the door where the gunman was inside. Take a listen to what they actually had to do. This is amazing. Each door can lock from the inside. And we're, both doors were locked okay, from the inside. So the subject, when he went in, he locked the door. He came out one time into the hallway, went back in and locked the door because at the time that the officers went in, both doors were locked. They got a key from the janitor and used it. So imagine when he went into the hallway for that second, if you had a SWAT team in place, that's the time to take the shot. Probably at that point, he was by himself at that moment for a few seconds. He goes into the hallway, then goes back in. That's really interesting information. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Joe in Pennsylvania, line three. Joe, your thoughts. Go ahead, Joe. Hi, Rita. I'm a first-time caller. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, good. I'm so glad you're calling in, Joe. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I had several questions in my mind about this situation. It was very sad for everyone. And it is. I just wanted to, I wanted to understand how he got into the, the the school because I heard that one of the teachers had a field trip and they put something in the door to keep it open and he was able to get in that way. I don't know how true that is. Act, and, actually, Joe, it's worse than that, sadly that a teacher um, walked out to get a cell phone, probably from her car or somewhere, propped the door open, came back in, and left the door propped open. It was the back door, and he went to the back door, and he didn't even have to break in anything. It was still propped open, and he walked right in. How sad is that? Very sad. And another question I have is, because of this, because of what happened, is now the federal government trying to federalize the police department because they say that the local, the city, and the state can't do their job. And is that what's another thing that's happening here? That's an interesting thing. We haven't heard that yet. Um, But that's actually a really interesting point because who knows if that's where this is headed. Um, We haven't seen what they're planning on coming up with yet. I don't foresee that. But I wouldn't be surprised if some people bring that up as a topic. Uh, Clearly, the guy on the ground, this local guy, and he's been called out by name of people there. It's Chief Pedro Pete Arredondo of the Uvalde School Police. He's the chief there. But it sounds like a guy who had some experience, but who knows if he'd ever been in this kind of a situation before. But he was the, quote, commander on the ground who made the wrong calls. Uh, let's go to Dina real quick. Line four. Dina, your thoughts real fast. Yes. Hi, Rita. Nice to talk to you. Uh, my heart is broken for these children. And uh, everybody likes to point a finger right right now, like uh, to the police. But uh, they can't help it. They have to wait for their order because uh, they, we shouldn't forget the Black Lives Matter, the guy that uh, the police uh, hurt. You know, that he died. Uh, You know what, uh, Dina, you bring up some great points because you're right that police are very careful right now. They've been accused of being overreaching, overzealous. They're very worried about being called into internal internal reviews and also defunded. A lot of these departments don't have the proper funding, the proper equipment, the proper training. 
Um, and that is a travesty. We need to protect our police. We're going to continue with your calls, everyone. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Feisty, fearless, and fair. She's an Emmy-winning journalist from the White House to war zones, telling all sides of the story. This is the Rita Cosby Show. So immediately you knew it was going to push toward gun control. And that seems to be the only thing the Democrats want to talk about. They're not talking about the mental history. They're not talking about the red flags. They're not talking about poor planning. So I want to hear your thoughts on the politics that Democrats seem to be using immediately. I mean, as soon as this shooting in Texas happened last week, and it is horrible, and I think that a lot of things should be discussed. Um, I don't understand how this kid who had apparently a juvenile record for planning to blow up a school or attack a school when he was 18. He's 14 years old, according to one report, and planned to do it when he turned 18. How was he able to buy a gun when he's 18? Why was there not some red flag for that? So I do think there are important discussions that need to be had. But if you listen to the Democrats, it is only guns. They don't want to talk about mental health. They don't want to talk about uh teacher responsibility, parental responsibility. They don't want to talk about more armed guards in schools. They just want to take away the guns and think that that is the solution. And I think that that is naive. I want to hear your thoughts tonight on all of this because it's definitely going to be gearing up this week. Tomorrow, there's supposed to be a Zoom meeting with Democrats and Republicans talking about what sensible gun control or measures should be happening. And I think it's good to be talking about everything. I I think right now we should also be thinking about hardening our schools. Democrats don't want to hear that. They seem to think, oh, no, let's not beef security. Let's not do anything to beef up police departments or schools around the country. Like as if some epiphany that things are going to go away. Uh, I mean, to me, I think it's incredibly naive. And I think there needs to be a comprehensive discussion And it shouldn't be a Republican or a Democratic discussion. It's an American discussion. Our kids are our American treasure. And so yesterday, President Biden and the First Lady went to Texas and they were shouting at him, saying, basically, when will things change? You must do something to make things change. Take a listen to the chants that they got. Do something. And he shouted back, we will. We will do something. And here is a little bit more of what the president had to say when he was asked about what are your plans with gun control. 
I've been pretty motivated all along. You know, the folks, uh, the folks who were victimized in their, their family, they spent about uh, three hours and 40 minutes with me. They waited all that time, and some came two hours early. And uh, the pain is palpable, and I think a lot of it's unnecessary. So I'm going to continue to push, and uh, we'll see how this works. And then he said, either you're basically with us or you are irrational. Take a listen to this. I think think things have gotten so bad that everybody's getting more rational about it. At least that's my hope and prayer. Everybody's getting more rational. In other words, if you're against gun control and they're looking at all-out bans on so many different levels, then you're irrational. They don't seem to want to talk about the kids' history. They don't seem to want to talk about fortifying schools to make sure they're safe. They don't seem to want to talk about, you know, making sure that police departments have X amount of money for the right kind of guns, the right kind of weaponry, the right kind of shields, the right kind of a whole bunch of different things. I mean, there's a lot of things here. Well, listen to this. Oh, Canada. Just before the show, I couldn't believe this. Good old Justin Trudeau, who I call him Trucker Trudeau, because remember, he wasn't very good to the truckers when they wanted freedom. Well, now Justin Trudeau has introduced a bill that would stop the buying, selling, transferring, or importing of handguns anywhere in Canada, basically putting a cap on guns. You cannot buy it. You cannot sell it. You cannot transport it, import it. You can't do anything with a handgun. I'm sure everything else, too. So this is getting really interesting. Take a listen. Here's a little bit of Justin Trudeau talking. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. Whoa! If you thought things were hardcore in some cities across America, oh, Canada! Whoa! He didn't give the truckers a break, and he's not giving anybody who has even a handgun a break. And these are, he's talking about legal owners. He's not saying we're going after criminals, we're going after this, we're going after that. He's saying anybody who has a handgun. Can you imagine if that was going to take place here in the United States? I want to play that again because that is like jaw-dropping. This is Justin Trudeau again making the comment because to me it is utterly shocking. I want to play it again because it is just like so wild that a leader of a country right now, can you imagine If any governor in America said that or if President Biden said that, I'm sure he'd love to say it. I'm sure Kathy Hochul might love to say it. I'm sure a number of other governors across the country would love to say it. But here's Justin Trudeau just a few hours ago. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer or import handguns 
anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. Whoa! So can you imagine if that was ever said in America? And by the way, in New York, we have some of the strictest gun laws, yet we've got a lot of gun crimes because people get them illegally. And good citizens want to have it to protect themselves. I was walking around a whole bunch of different stores recently. 99% of them looked pretty much abandoned. It was actually pretty disenchanted. Cities like New York and Los Angeles, maybe not 99%, but a lot of them, I'd say. Definitely half of them looked like they had not come back since COVID. And that is a sad testament. Some of them either had looted. You could see sections were sectioned off like in the fine jewelry department or something like that, they were sectioned off because they've had so much looting. I went to the uh, drugstore. I had to like, could I get uh, Q-tips? And Q-tips was behind the little plastic thing because I guess people are robbing Q-tips. I I mean, what does it come to? You know, and then you want to say, okay, well, you're not going to have any handguns when all these people are out there looting and crime and everything else. What's the solution? Well, here, NYPD Commissioner Howard Safer had an interesting solution dealing with assault weapons. Take a listen. This is the former NYPD commissioner, and he pitched a proposal. Uh, I just did a new podcast with him. It is called Protecting America. It's a fascinating discussion because he's been in law enforcement forever. Remember, he worked with Rudy Giuliani. This guy knows law enforcement. And he said that, yes, something does need to be done. And he had actually a really interesting suggestion. Take a listen. Here's a little bit of our discussion in our new podcast that just went up today. I have an idea that I'm trying to push forward anywhere I can, which I think will keep guns out of the hands of mass shooters. And what is that? Tell us about your plan. Since Columbine, just about all of the mass shootings have involved young men under 18, have involved assault weapons. You know, in this horrible tragedy that just took place, Ramos went into a gun store, put down $2,000, and in a very short time thereafter, walked out with two assault weapons. Now, we had an assault weapons ban, which ended in 2004, and unfortunately, the Congress has no appetite for reinstituting it. But there is something in between. The federal gun laws require that if you want to own a machine gun, not not an assault rifle, but a machine gun, can get a license. And in order to get that license, you need to submit two photos, have your fingerprints taken, have a local law enforcement agency certify that you should have one, and pay a $200 tax. If we reclassified assault rifles the same way we treat machine guns, then none of these kids would be able to just go into a store and buy an assault rifle. And that's, you know, from a logical standpoint, it's not violating anybody's right to own a weapon. It's just putting them through a few more hoops to protect the public. I think that is a logical way to deal with these young people getting these guns so quickly. Really fascinating suggestion from Howard Safer, again, who is not uh, an anti-Second Amendment guy. He just thinks for assault weapons, there should be a stricter standard. And he's very concerned about these young teenage guys getting access to guns that clearly have histories. 
Uh, what are your thoughts about all of this? By the way, definitely check out the podcast. It's called Protecting America. It's a brand new podcast. Uh, we put it up today, and you can go to my social media, at Rita Cosby on Twitter. You'll see it up there. It is a fascinating discussion with one of the great lawmen in America, former New York City Police Department Commissioner Howard Safer. Um, let's go to Joseph, line six. Joseph, your thoughts about all of this. Go ahead, Joseph. Hey, Joseph. Joseph, we're losing you. Let's go to John on line eight. Go ahead, John. Hey, Rita. You know, uh, on Sunday, Joe Biden went to Catholic Church down in Uvalde. I don't know if he received communion or not, but after he got out of church, he started ranting about guns all day. Uh, he was particularly bothered by nine millimeter handguns. Yes. He spent so much time talking about nine millimeter handguns, it left me wondering does he realize there's 10 millimeters, there's 40s, 44s, and 45s? Uh, the way he talked, it sounded like he thought a nine millimeter was the biggest caliber. Uh, I don't think he knows next to nothing about guns. By the way, John, I agree with you. I don't think he does either. I think he just got some talking point on a card and he kept reading it over and over again because that seems to be the case with everything that he does and particularly in this case. I mean, do you feel he's been so political, John? I mean, I feel immediately right after the shooting happened and he was addressing the nation and that's an important role as the president. He should be addressing the nation and I think he should go to visit them as he did Yesterday, I think that's very important. Um, but it was like he spent like a minute saying my hearts and my thoughts and prayers are with the families. And then he spent the next like five or ten, like basically reading DNC talking points about guns, like you're saying. You know, it's like and to me, it's like he he quickly turned it to a political thing. And, and I, I found it distasteful, John. You know, uh, yeah, I really he did. As, he came across as very disingenuous. As far as you're being there to mourn. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I agree. John, thank you very, very much. I agree. Let's go to John on line one. We got another John. It's a John night. Go ahead, John. Hey, Rita. It's kind of sad that we have to keep talking about this day after day after day until we find a solution. Because uh, whatchamacallit, like, you know, you mentioned that I didn't hear about it, but this kid had problems. So why don't we open up the medical records? Because we know. These kids all had problems, and they, they would want to kill somebody. Let's see their medical records. Expose it. People who people, are politicians they expunge people who are taking pot, and pot causes psychiatric problems also. Why do you want to expose, you know, expunge people's records taking drugs? That, that should be, you know, at least open to the courts and judges to say that this goes right on the record that you can't get a gun because of your, you know, mentality. By the way, and John, John, I agree with you. I I 1,000% agree with you. I think that there should have been something in this guy's system. The fact that he made a threat and he was also like, you know, self-mutilating and doing all these other things. But he actually, according to one of these Texas senators, came out and he said, four years ago, the kid said, when I turn 18, I want to shoot up a school. And, And then sure enough, he turns 18 and he goes and buys a gun. I mean, are you, this, this, it's like, I mean, this is like a big old neon sign and I don't blame the gun seller because the gun seller saw nothing in his record, but you just hit a very important point, John, because it should have been in his record. 
If somebody has made those kind of threats at any point in their lives, they should be automatically disqualified from getting access to any sort of weapon like that. To me, that is outrageous. And, and, and that should be in the system. And it should be in the system for a lot of things. Um, you know, I don't think necessarily maybe other kids need to know or whatever, or it, need, it doesn't need to be public. But I think if you're buying a gun, something should come up in the system. If you're planning on doing something that that could be considered dangerous or whatever it is to others, something should come up in the system. I mean, absolutely. Why is this kid getting some sort of protection and right now Everything out there should be out there publicly. That family deserves to know, and America deserves to know. And every single person who lost a loved one in that school, they deserve to know. We're going to continue with your calls, everybody. 800-848-9222. This is the Rita Cosby Show. And everybody on this Memorial Day, by the way, where we, of course, are honoring our fallen heroes and all of our veterans, um, we're going to be talking with Rob O'Neill, the great legendary Navy SEAL who killed Osama bin Laden. And I wanted to play a really powerful conversation that I had with him not that long ago where he describes going in for that historic mission, what it was like. And why he does what he does. He was expecting that he, it was going to be a one-way trip. And he said he was willing to do it because he loves America and he knew how important it was. It just shows the incredible spirit of our great men and women in uniform. And as many of you know, my father was rescued by American troops. My father was a POW. So there's nothing that um, I can ever do to thank them enough for everything that they've done for my family and for America. Um, but we're going to be talking to Rob O'Neill coming up after the break as well. Meantime, we are talking about these cases of what happened in Texas and also recent cases. By the way, this is scary. You know, and this always happens after these Texas shootings, these sort of, quote, copycats, if you will. Um, a fifth grader, get this, a fifth grader in Florida was arrested over the weekend for threatening to pull off a mass shooting via text messages um, he was walked by police. They basically did a perp walk of the kid, a 10-year-old kid from Cape Coral. And the sheriff there said, right now is not a time to act like a little delinquent. There's nothing funny about this. Uh, the child made a fake text, and now he's experiencing real-life consequences. Throw the book at this kid. You know, I mean, how sick are you? And this kid, it should be on his record that he made this kind of a threat. Here's another one. Also in Florida, an 18-year-old kid of Lutz, Florida, um, there was a tip that led authorities after a school-based threat. Um, and then they went online and they saw that this 18-year-old guy was showing off a handgun, a rifle, and a tactical-style style vest. And underneath the photo, he had a caption. Get this. Hey, Siri, directions to the nearest school. Uh, like, is uh, does anybody out there think that that's funny? How disgusting And how sick is that? It turned out, luckily, the weapons that were posted online were airsoft guns, uh, not real guns. But what kind of sick person, after what happened in Texas, thinks it's funny to post something like that online? And I'm glad that law enforcement is throwing the book at this 10-year-old and the 18-year-old. And anybody who makes these kind of threats, throw the book at them, put it in their record, 
And there should be certain privileges that they never get to have, like a gun or other things that we've talked about um, that should go on their record forever because it is just disgusting. Um, Let's go to Stu real quick. Line four. Stu, your thoughts about all of this. Go ahead, Stu. Yeah, Rita, uh, after 9-11, we hardened the airports. Uh, in 03, I was recruited as a maritime counterterrorism specialist, and my mission was to every ship in the world had to come up with a, uh, a certificate of security. No one has done that with the uh, the schools. A $50 Claxton horn on an open door might have prevented this whole thing when the teacher left it ajar alerting someone that there's a breach in their security. Yeah, you're right, Stu, by the way. Stu, you're absolutely right. There should have been something or an alarm should have gone off to say, hey, there's a cracked door. Um, You know, maybe he might have still gotten in some other way, but it certainly wouldn't have made it as easy for him to get in, and every second counts. We're going to continue with your calls and also talk to Rob O'Neill in our Support Our Heroes segment. Rita Cosby is on. The Rita Cosby Show presents Support Our Heroes. And in tonight's Support Our Heroes segment where we honor our great men and women in uniform, we thought on this Memorial Day night that we would revisit a recent interview that I did with Rob O'Neill, the legendary heroic Navy SEAL who killed bin Laden. Take a listen. So tell us about, of course, the the most amazing mission of your life, the preparation that goes into knowing we're going to go after Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. When did you know and what kind of preparation went into that moment? We knew about three weeks before we left. They, they, the time they told us that we were going somewhere to the time they told us who it was was like two days, maybe a day and a half. But we figured it out before that. Yeah, how just, much earlier did you figure it out? Well, we just we, we were asking questions. The way it started, the question, the way it started was the reason you're here is because we found a thing. This thing is in a house in a bowl between these mountains. This mountain, this bowl's in a country. You're going to go in and get it and bring it back. And we're like, well, where is it? Can't tell you. Okay, how are we getting there? Can't tell you. And eventually they would answer, well, it's like a helicopter. But what, well, what do you mean like a helicopter? <laughs> so we're thinking different platforms got to be here. Maybe it's Libya. And just based on everything you're thinking, okay, it's high value, obviously, because this person's here. Then you just, okay, this has been Laden. Um, it's in the book. It's a better story, and it's actually the way a veteran would talk. And the story is actually funny. I just can't say it today. But it's, it's, it's a good story. <laughs> it, is. it is a good it, story. It, it, evol- it involves uh, – Colorful language. Yes, it does involve, which is which is good. In the book, you can do it. Mm-hmm. We can bleep it a little on air, eh. but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather not. So when you find out, okay, it's been Laden, mm-hmm. what goes through your mind? Here you've had all these other amazing missions, but that moment, what just as an American and as a are we as going? Are trained, we going right now? It's like you found him, we're ready now. Well, no, you need to train. No, we don't. Show me where he is. I, barely, I barely need a gun. Just give me a... Was was that rush there? Was no, that like- no, 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 no. Um, we'd done it so many times. They, they picked um, they picked a group of prof- professionals, and uh, they they explained to us you, you you might not go, but you're one of the five options that we have. So we're going to take you to a site where you're going to train on it, not for yourselves. And they said we respect the fact that you know your tactics, you developed them, but we need to show the people who might make the decision that you can do it. This is kind of how the chain of command works, especially when you're dealing with politicians. So uh, so we did. So we trained for a while, and, and it was interesting. We came up with different. 
we had the model, we're going to do this. We came up with the perfect plan, and I think as most people here know, the only time the perfect plan exists is when you're planning. As soon as you leave to execute the mission, everything changes. So uh, we just we planned on it, we rehearsed it with helicopters, without, and then we talked about it. And, and there was even a night when we, we, we come up with every contingency, and the boss said, all right, what's the worst thing that could happen? And the youngest guy in the room said, well, maybe the helicopter will crash in the front yard. Which happened, yes, right? <laughs> that's exactly what happened. So we talked about that for 30 seconds, and that happened. Wow. But, no, we were ready for it, and we, uh, we went overseas. You know, we, we did the final preparation with the families, and they didn't know where we were going, but I had the last meal with the kids, and they didn't know it was the last meal, and we accepted the fact that we weren't going to come home. You believe that you yeah. would probably not make it back? Yeah, 90% chance. What did you think would happen to you? You get shot down you? on the way in. We're uh, invading a sovereign nation with whom we're not at war. And not telling Pakistan. Not, no. And um, You know what was amazing to me always when, when that happened? And I was one of one of the few journalists who knew about bin Laden. I actually requested an interview with him mm. in uh, 2000. So did I. Yeah, yeah. I got yeah. My- <laughs> you got to talk to him. I didn't. That's the difference. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but I remember when it happened, and you, first of all, you're going into Pakistan. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine they don't know you're going in. No. And then there's the military academy. Their equivalent of the West Point is right down yeah, the street. Yeah, less than a mile away. Were you shocked how it was literally right there? No. Um, they knew he was there. The, yeah, it's a big house, maybe not, house. Maybe not the military, but the, the intelligence services inside of Pakistan have every reason to know he's there and every reason to protect him based on their interests. Uh, I'm not saying the entire Pakistani military knew he was there or even some of the government, but the, the intel, uh, 100%, I would, I would bet on that. I know it for a fact, actually. And when you look at the fact it's this huge house in the middle mm-hmm. of this tiny little village, it stands out. Um, obviously, the big walls around it. Yes. Um, we know the story of the doctor who mm-hmm. was coming in and out and getting the swabs and all the – and we saw in Zero Dark Thirty, the famous movie of the operator who also provided – put all the intel together, too. Yes. She was real. That's yeah, absolutely right. Yes, um, but you still don't know a hundred percent until I you're was there. convinced by how convincing she was. Yes, you were by her. Did mm-hmm. you talk to her? Oh yeah, she was with us the whole the whole, the whole time, up, up until we. Her. She went even to Afghanistan with us. I ran into her after, um, right before we left, and she was pacing, and I was like, what, "What's why are you nervous?" And she goes, "Are you kidding me? Why aren't you nervous?" And I'm like, "Because well, we do this every night. We fly somewhere, we mess with people, we fly home. But you need to be right, so I understand why you're nervous now." How was um, the movie Zero Duck Thirty, which we all saw, a lot of us saw with Jessica Chastain? Yes. Was that pretty close it to? It was good. I've, I've seen it a bunch of times. Pretty realistic? As far as this, the agency goes, yes. I think it was good. They really put their A-team on there. I was very impressed with every analyst. It wasn't just one woman. It was a group a group of women and then a few guys, and they were really good. Um, I could pick apart tactics in any movie, which I would on that one. It was fine. I mean, the stuff that actually happened, I wish I could have helped if they wanted to make a great movie because – it's a lot easier than, they, than they, Hollywood makes it look, and it's a lot cooler. And there's, there's a little more dark humor, and especially at the end when she fi- finally saw the body. That's in the book, too. I'm not going to ruin it. Plus, I can't use that language either. Oh, shoot. That's a good <laughs> tease, everybody. And again, everybody, the book is called The Operator. I've been the book for three weeks. I got this. I know you got You're a pro. You're a pro. I think you're pretty good at whatever you do. Um, you're, so you get the word, okay? You're, you're on the chopper. The chopper goes down. Mm-hmm. You're walking through the house, and you've got the guy in front of you, of course. Well, I didn't know the helicopter crashed. Oh, you hadn't known yet? Okay. I was in the other one. Okay. So, no, I knew that, but, yeah. but you did, they didn't tell you the No, other they one tried there. to, but we didn't understand. Okay. They said dash one going down, and we thought they said dash one going around. 
So we thought they took fire, came back into. It's very dangerous to fast rope on top of people. So, okay, and then we we went and did a few things, and we blew a door that turned out to be a fake door, and it was a wall that didn't collapse. We're sort of figuring, okay, this is good because it's fake. We'll blow. So we told them we'll blow this door, and they said, don't don't blow it. We'll open it. They opened it, and the thumb came out. And that's a point in like when stuff is going on, and you need to worry about stuff that or think about stuff that matters. I was thinking, I don't know how our guys got in there, but I'm not worried about it because they're in there. Right. We'll talk about it tomorrow. They're in there. So you just go in. Their helicopter crashed, but I'm looking this way. It's like, hey, there's this house. We know what we're going to do. We actually got in to the house, and that's when one of the guys told me. So I'm in, I'm in the back looking down a hallway, and one of the guys whispered helicopter crash. I'm like, oh, man, which one? I thought it was some of, the, some of our guys behind us, way behind us. And he goes, bro, our helicopter crashed. You walked right past us. I'm like, Okay. And as we're saying this, the sniper who was running around the perimeter with the dog, as we're having this conversation, he ran into the famous part of the tail that was on the fence. He came over the radio. He was on my helicopter, and he said, all right, everybody be aware. They're ready for us. They have a training mock-up of our super-secret helicopter in the front yard. And then the boss goes, no, jackass, that's ours. We crashed. (laughs) He goes, yeah, you're right. That makes more sense. So now you're having this discussion. Now, yeah, as we're in Bin Laden's house. I think you're in the house and you're having this. Yeah, and that's when we realize, okay, now this this too can be discussed tomorrow. So then we can... Let's continue the mission. Yeah, seriously. That's the kind of stuff that was going on. So you have this thing. You figure out, okay, it's your helicopter, uh-huh. the whole thing. You're going in. There's a guy in front of you. Well, first of all, there's no, a there was, by the way, there was, there was eight guys, seven guys in front yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is going down the one the hall. Who So, well, yeah, but we, we didn't get up there yet. So I'm behind these guys. What was unique about my spot is that now I'm in a spot in the back, what we call the train, and I can watch guys work. So I'm, I'm watching the greatest mission in the history of the SEAL teams, but it's my guys and I have front row seats. So I remember thinking the entire time, they're so cool. I'm so proud of these guys. This house should come down on us. A house-born improvised explosive device at any time, and these guys don't care. Slow is smooth. Smooth is fast. Kick, mechanical, explosive. and Calm. Yeah. Focused. And not even talking. Other so than they, figuring out the helicopter. Well, that thing, <laughs> that was a quick one. Uh, between that and, like, switching out Copenhagen with each other. And then, um, then uh, we get to the thing and the door that was barricaded, and we start going up. And that's, again, when I'm looking up six, seven guys in front of me. And the analysts that found bin Laden said that you're going to run into Khalid bin Laden somewhere on the stairs. I don't know where the stairs are. They're in there. And so we're up there, and I'm watching. It's quiet. And they saw Khalid. He jumped behind a banister. And the, the guy in front just kind of quietly said, Khalid, Khalid, like Urfa Hidek. He's talking to him. And Khalid just went, what? That was it. Very smart. Khalid was armed well within his rules of engagement. Um, he just talked him into it because they were in a weird spot. And that happened. Then we went up another level. The guys in front of me, other than the point man, started clearing their spots. That's just the way the tactics have worked every time. Then it's down to two of us. So it's the point man and myself looking up the stairs through a curtain. They're clearing off to our right and left, and the point man started talking to me. Didn't know it was me. Knew it was his two-man, one of his guys. And he just convinced me we got to get up there now because he could see people moving, and we need, they're putting on suicide vests. we got to go. And he just convinced me to do it, and I wanted more, but we didn't have them. And it wasn't bravery at this point, but I know Bin Laden's right there. It wasn't bravery. I just remember thinking, I'm tired of worrying about it. We're going to blow up. Let's get it over with. And I squeezed him on the shoulder. We went up. He moved the curtain, and he jumped on the people he assumed were uh, de- defense, like a suicide bombers. He jumped on them to absorb the blast, which is the bravest thing I've ever seen. And I'm thinking about how brave that was. I turned to the right, and there's Bin Laden three feet in front of me, standing with his hands on his wife's shoulder. I saw him. He's taller than I thought, skinnier than I thought, shorter beard, gray hair. That's his nose. He's a threat. That's Bin Laden. He's a bomber. 
You've got to take them down. And the way you treat a suicide bomber is you shoot them in the face. Um, I've been with suicide bombers before. It's very fast. It's loud. It's permanent. And people who question why you shoot them in the face, that's why. Because a suicide bomber, people live a lot longer in real life than they do in the movies. And a suicide bomber connects two circuits, the thing goes off. You need to make sure they're not mobile, and that's what happened. Multiple shots? Yes, three. What goes through your mind, Rob O'Neill, at that moment? You're looking at well, the most wanted man in the world. What went through the, at that point was the room's not clear yet. And the wife was still there. I had to move her to the bed. The son is there. He's about three years old. Uh, I do remember thinking, as a father, this poor kid's got nothing to do with this. He's just here. And I picked him up, put him by his his mom, and that's when it hit me. And other SEALs are clearing the room, and I, I stood there. And my, my buddy, who had been engaged downstairs and killed one of the terrorists, he came up to me, and he goes, uh, you okay? And I said, yeah, what do we do now? And he just his big smile, and he goes, well, now we go find the computers. Um, you've done this with me hundreds of times. <laughs> and I said, oh, you're right. I'm back. And he goes, yeah, you just killed Osama bin Laden, so your life just changed. I'm like, okay, let's find the computers, I guess. And that's and then we just started to roll through the, what we normally do, and then we realized um, we want to be on the ground. We've been here for this many minutes. We want to be out in 34. Let's find everything we can, and let's leave. And that's this one starts to th- sink in. Like, we might we might pull this off. We might live. This house hasn't blown up yet. We can go. So we started finding computers, finding – we found uh, uh, all kinds – like pounds, hundreds of pounds of opium, pornography – guns, um, you know, but we found what we wanted, and then we got out, and we got in the helicopters, and then we started flying out. And it, what, was, what was interesting is one of the helicopters that came in, the one that I got on was one that other SEALs from my same command but different squadron was on, so they kind of rescued us. So we all jumped in there. We're flying away, and the guy below me was the sniper from the Captain Phillips raid. So I'm laying on top of him. The guy next to me is a SEAL from Montana. I'm sorry, Manhattan, from right here. And he asked There's me a little that, difference between Montana yes, and Manhattan, there is, there is. I, I got a lot of stuff going on. Quite a bit. So um, he's from Manhattan, and he said, um, he asked me what every veteran asked as soon as they found out. He said, who got him? And I said, I did. And he said, on behalf of my family, thank you, which was the kind of sunk in a little bit. And then the sniper from the Captain Phillips raid, who had up to this point done the most historic thing in the teams, he pulled his, his Copenhagen out and said, here, take one of mine. Now you know what it's like. It's like, okay, fair enough. And then we're flying out and we got 90 minutes, 90 minutes to go that way. And we can live. Wow. We're going to live. And how long were you in, in airspace? How long were you in Pakistani airspace? Well, uh, 90 minutes in. Was it 90 in Pakistan itself? Mm-hmm. It was. I didn't yeah. realize it was that long. That was in the Pakistan, window. Yes. Which is a long window, especially when they're going to shoot at you and you're in a helicopter. That's a heck of a long window. <laughs> so what's going on in your mind? And then, and well, then I don't want to jinx it is what's going through. It's like, yeah, no, it's been 20 minutes. Okay. So 70 more Then it's like an hour. We get an hour and we get 50 more years of life. Now it's been, you know, and we've got this line. And, and then I, it's almost like watching a, a no hitter in the top of the sixth. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to jinx this, but it might happen. And then we get to 50 minutes, 60 minutes, 70 minutes, and then it turns into the hockey game in Lake Placid when the Americans are beating the Russians. You can hear them count down. <laughs> you don't, I don't game. want to start the 10, <laughs> 9, being all nervous. And then we're 85 minutes into the flight, and the pilot came over the radio, and just very calmly, like a pilot does, the pilots are so cool, he goes, all right, gentlemen, for the first time in your lives, you're going to be happy to hear this. Welcome to Afghanistan. <laughs> oh, got it. What went through your mind when you suddenly, you're like, I am I am free, I'm alive, and I just killed no, I didn't, I Osama didn't, bin Laden. I didn't, I didn't think I just killed bin Laden. I, just, I thought that we are going to be the best friends for the rest of our lives. This, we pulled this off. I can't wait to talk to that pilot that put that helicopter down 
to save everyone's life. If he would have tried to power up, he would have flipped it, killed everyone. But he made the decision like that. I'm gonna, I got to put it there. I got to put the tail on that fence. Like that's just, I just to look around and see this team. It was just, it was just cool. It was just very, very cool. Very honored to be asked to do that because you got to figure when we, when we went in, and I, I love having a, having a happy conversation. When we were going in, um, I had the guy that actually led me up the stairs. He pulled me aside and said, "Hey, uh, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying I'm not going. I'm going. But if we know we're going to die, why are we going?" And I said, "Well, we're not going for ourselves. We're not going for fame. We're going for the single mom." who dropped her kids off at elementary school on a Tuesday morning, and 45 minutes later she jumped to her death out of a skyscraper because that was the better alternative than burning alive at 2,500 degrees. She wasn't supposed to do that. She doesn't fight, we fight, and that's why we're going. And that's, we went for, we went for New York, you know. And that was what we talked about. And, and that's... And, and, and that's what made it easy. That's that's what made it easy was was um, this is our job. We came for the the, the passengers on on flight ninety three were braver than we were, you know. And that, that's we had these conversations. I mean, it was a, it was a serious deal. But we're, yeah, I mean, it's giving me goosebumps right now. And just and what an honor to be picked to be a part of that team. There's there are so many so many uh, people out there in the in the military who could have done it, but they asked us and and we did it. And you've met, I know, some of the families. I know when um, oh yeah, I did you know the when time. the museum opened up. Um, we're obviously not too far, you mm-hmm. know. From here, you met some of the. What was that like for you? It's never the same. It's never the. It's. It happens every day. I, I, I hung out with uh, some first responders uh, yesterday. I met some first responders who are here today. Never the same story, and they'll always say something along the lines of, "Because this story is out with a real name, I know what happened, and I sleep better." And people ask me all the time, "Well, aren't you worried about being a target?" No, I'm not. I don't care because the, if this helps with the with the healing process, I've assumed risk before. I'll do it again. And like it or not, we saw what happened in, in, in Manchester. We're all targets. But if something like this – and there's nothing wrong with having a great story about patriotism, a great American story. This wasn't uh, – you know, okay, there was a, there was a uh, – we had a Democrat in the White House and we had some Republicans in the Pentagon. This wasn't a left or right. This was America. What a great conversation and what a great American, Rob O'Neill, the Navy SEAL who killed Osama bin Laden. We really wanted to play it for you on this Memorial Day to talk about the incredible sacrifice, especially of those who did not make it home on so many missions around the world, all for our freedom. Um, And we can never say thank you enough. We are so, so grateful to our military on Memorial Day and every single day. When we come back, I'm going to continue with your calls, everybody. Feel free to talk about Memorial Day, what the military means to you. And also we are talking, of course, about the Texas shooting and so many things that went wrong. 1-800-848-9222. It's the Rita Cosby Show. And you are listening to the Rita Cosby Show as we continue to talk. We're just doing a beautiful tribute to our military. But we also are talking about a lot of the questions and a lot of the problems that went horribly wrong in terms of the police response and also the red flags that didn't seem to go anywhere um, because it doesn't look like there were any red flags in the case tied to the mass shooting in Texas. It is heartbreaking. Um, let's real quick, let's go to Susan on line five. Susan, you're here on the Rita Cosby Show. Your thoughts. Hi, Rita. 
indeed. Uh, listen, it's great to speak to you. And uh, sorry, I cut off before. I was just getting a call back from my 90-year-old, the last uh, remaining uh, veteran in our family. Um, but what I wanted to say about this um, situation um, in Texas with the shooting, um, I have three children who went through parochial schools, Catholic schools in um in Brooklyn, and I can tell you, 20 years ago, those schools, there's no way any parent could get in there. Those schools were like Fort Knox. If you, if your kid forgot their lunch or their gym clothes, forget about it. You aren't just walking in there. Now, but, and what I'm disturbed about, because they keep repeating this in the news um, reels, about the Texas situation is that a teacher propped open the door that that uh, I'm just going to say individual because I would probably say something terrible um, was able and he was shooting before he even got into that school. Yeah, he was shooting outside, Susan. You bring up a great point. He did have some encounter and he fired a couple rounds outside And this teacher went out to get, I think, a cell phone by one of the reports, came back in and left the door propped open. And that was prior to all this. Um, But wouldn't you think they checked to make sure the doors are locked when they heard that there was a shooter? Apparently there was some alert put out in the area. And you would think that that would mean a lockdown. That needs to be like you brought up a great point. Um, First of all, why shouldn't there be some like red alarm if there's a door open? Didn't some wasn't someone aware that there's a door open? He literally opened the door. I mean, I feel bad for the teacher because she probably thought, "Oh, I'm just going to run out here and I'm going to come back." But you can't leave a door open in a school, and just bad timing that the guy happened to be in the parking lot goes to the back door. Oh, look, this door's open. I'm going to walk through it. Basically, uh, it is it is heartbreaking upon heartbreaking. Um, let's go to Howard on line seven. Howard, your thoughts on this Memorial Day. Go ahead, Howard. Hi, Rita. My thoughts are that millennials are not being taught about the heroism that Americans have had to display in war throughout the last century, at very least. I agree. I agree. Millennials need to understand so much more of the sacrifice and meet real-life heroes you know, meet the World War II guys who are still around and gals who are still around, um, you know, because they're living heroes, I think, and meet folks from different generations of wars, too. I think anybody who has served in our military, I think there should be some sort of mandated class where they go in and they speak to them and they talk to them about what they went through and they get to meet them and understand their stories. Um, I think it's sorely lacking, and I also think it would teach young people about the values of serving the country, of serving something much bigger than themselves, um, the importance of so many. There's so many, like, incredible values that are veterans and also the sacrifice, as we're talking about a Memorial Day, of those who did not come back, um, share those stories with them. Um, boy, those are important to share. Real quick, Norman on line six. Norm, real quick, your thoughts. Uh, just, I just called to say give thanks to veterans all over. And... Uh, Basically, uh, I grew up with two veterans. My father served in combat in the Second War, and my mother was a German translator in the Women's Army Corps. So, wow, anyway. Norm! Now I know why I love you because you come from great stock. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you to all our veterans. We will never forget your sacrifice. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 